Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul from the spirit as joints or bones from marrow and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be uh, equipped, thoroughly furnished, furnished for every good work. And 2 Timothy 2.15, as we studied a little while ago, says that Timothy is to make every effort to be diligent, to, to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed or an unashamed workman, cutting straight the word of truth. And that's what we're seeking to do today as we open the scriptures to 2 Timothy 3.16. And my message is entitled, Paul Identifies the Bible. What is it? What is it? And we'll talk about what the Bible is very clearly from what Paul says in terms of its origin. Very important to get its origin. And here's a spoiler alert. It's not man. Its origin and its purpose. To illustrate what the significance of this is to me and to this church, let me suggest to you that when I first considered becoming a pastor by vocation, I believed that it was a matter of calling in terms of aptitude and interest. But I did not for a moment, and this won't surprise many of you, I did not for a moment think of it as a, a thing where I would speak to people. <laughs> I didn't consider it something where I'm going to be the guy telling everybody how it is. The origin of my interest in being a pastor is in my desk with my Bible open and my tape player playing while I'm taking notes on the message from my pastor. I wanted to study the word of God for my vocation. Many of you, if not most of you, know exactly what I'm talking about. That when you're being taught God's word, something in us clicks on. And we're not just being given somebody's ideas about how this story is going to make me feel something. We're not just being given four ways to be a better husband or, or some drivel, some twaddlesome drivel. I always want to use the word twaddlesome. We're being told who God is. And we're being told what we can know with certainty. And I'm being established and stabilized by this truth. Early on in my life, because of God's grace and nothing in myself, because of his arrangement through my parents and the way he put me together, I got an appetite for God's word. And I have to confess to you, it wasn't the kind of appetite where I was just running. Oh, let's get in the word. It was the kind of appetite where I was running from the disquiet, the unease, the unstable feeling of life where ah, I need to get stability. And I knew where it was, even if I didn't feel like going there. The person that's dying of thirst often isn't thirsty anymore for water. What I'm trying to tell you is that the word of God <clears throat> is what it is, whether we humans recognize it or not. Until we take Peter's advice, in fact, his command to long for it like a baby, like for the, for the pure milk of the word, like a baby, like a newborn baby longs for milk. If we don't adopt that attitude toward the scriptures, we're going to find ourselves craving for something that is not God's word. We're going to crave anything and everything but what God has to say. 
because we're no longer thinking in terms of knowing him. We're thinking in terms of solving our problems. We're thinking in terms of what about me? We're asking questions like, how is this Bible passage relevant to me? And we have by that much, according to the enemy of God and the God of this present darkness, we have made ourselves the issue and forfeited our eternal significance in that moment. It's not God's plan for you, beloved. How would you know that? You put your finger in the Bible because of what it is. So let's get into it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we've read through chapter 3, and I want to drill in just a little bit today on this favorite passage, this favorite definitive statement about what God's Word is. One of these places where the, um, the liberal Christian, and that has a specific meaning historically, the person that denies the inspiration of the Bible, the, inerrant, the, the consequent inerrancy of the Scriptures, the person that says, well, the Bible's got some really important ideas. You can get saved by what it says, but we don't believe necessarily every word of it. That person, that political commentator who may or may not be a Jewish rabbi who says, yeah, I believe in the Bible, but not Genesis 1 through 11. I really, I really turn on when we start hearing about Abraham, the calling of Abraham. Well, do you believe in Elijah calling fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel? Do you believe in God parting the waters with a wind when Moses stretched his hand across the water at the Reed Sea and that Israel walked across the, the, the sea on dry land? Do you believe that? Do you believe that when Joshua led the children of Israel across the Jordan River in its uh, overflowing, in its flood season, that, that again, when the priests set foot in the Jordan River, the water stacked up in a heap and Israel again walked across the water on dry land in their conquest. Do you believe what the word of God says after Genesis chapter 12? Or are you just picking the parts that seem like they fit with your worldview that you already have? See, this is a battleground passage. And to deny, uh, to deny God's word what it is, you have to go after this passage. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit today in 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, I'm going to treat this a little bit like we did 2 Timothy 2.15 because it is so central to our philosophy of ministry. Most of the time that I find myself at odds with my theological betters, it is because I think they've misinterpreted a passage of the scriptures. And while I think the passage may be difficult to understand or reason through with the rest of all that we know from God's word, I take a different view of that passage, and then we're different theologically. That's, that's the cross we have to bear, because it's God's word, and we should take care of it. So let's look at it today. I want to go through a little bit of the, the history of English translation of 2 Timothy 3.16, which in the New American Standard says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And ladies, Paul is talking to Timothy and telling him to step up and be a man of God. It doesn't mean you're not women of God in the same sense. You need to be in the word just as badly as Timothy does because you suffer from the same ailment that Timothy had. You have a sinful nature. You and I tend to curve everything back on ourselves. We think it's all about me. And that's a repentance that we're constantly responsible to make, a constant change of mind back to the things of God. Keep on, keep on seeking the thing, things above where Christ is at the right hand of the Father. You have the same problem as Timothy. Because of your personal sin and the distractions of this world, you run a constant risk of not fulfilling God's plan for you 
and living out your spiritual gift, which requires spiritual maturity, which requires a consistent intake and application of God's word. You, like Timothy, could find yourself very easily sidelined and not developing spiritually as you should and putting on the full armor of God. And you could find yourself attacked because of ministry experience and then find yourself not doing what God has for you because you're hurt, because you're sad, because you're sorry, because whatever reason, that's Timothy's situation. He is a man gifted by God with a mission from God who is not on mission. And we don't have much detail in the letter about what the circumstance is, but that's why Paul wrote 2 Timothy. This applies to all of us because we all run that risk in the sense that we all have a spiritual gift. We all need to grow spiritually and we all need to be on mission. All right, let's get after being equipped for every good work in 1380 or so. John Wycliffe said it this way. <laughs> I've got to bring Wycliffe out. The daddy, uh, the granddaddy of all English Bible translations said forsoth. I mean, of course he did. He said forsoth all. That's important. He interpreted pasa to be all scripture. So singular all, collective plural word, but singular, and scripture as a singular word. And that's an interesting like, thought in Greek. But that's the, this is the earliest English translation I can find this passage, which means he's looking at the Bible. He's not looking at every word and the lines in the Bible. He's saying the Bible, and that's a battleground of the interpretation of this passage. It doesn't matter the difference because if I have every drop, I'll use my, my illustration. If I have every drop in this cup of coffee, I have the whole cup of coffee, right? It's made up of all the drops. So every drop or all drops or, or the whole coffee. That's the question. Is it every scripture or all scripture? It doesn't matter. In other words, but Paul means one of the two. Forsooth, that means truly, all scripture of God inspired. See the inspired? That's inspired. I like modern English better. Inspired is profitable. Now here, here's really an interesting thing. He put an is in there. He found a verb where Paul didn't write one because that's how Greek works. And this is how English translation of Greek works. Hey, it's cool. It's snowing out there. All right. It's profitable to teach. Everybody see teach? T-E-C-H-E. Boy, don't, don't let him teach spelling. <laughs> to teach, to argue. I think argument something different back then, 700 years ago than it means today. Or prove, the U is a V, prove. To reprove, for to learn, learn to, to paideia, to um, training in Everybody see this word right here? You can read Old English righteousness. That the man of God be perfect. This is the worst of the English tradition of this word, artios. Everybody says perfect. It isn't the word perfect. But Wycliffe said it was. He didn't have as good a lexicon back then. He really didn't as we do today. And so uh, he, he conjectured perfect. Lurid. I don't know what that word is. It's not lurid, like the word we have in English, but it's probably something like learned. Maybe we'll have a, have a contest, see if anybody can figure out what that word is, lurid, but it's the one that we've... <laughs> here comes the phone out. This word is translating equipped to all good work. W-E-R-K. It's like, I mean, this, is, this looks like how kids are going to be texting pretty soon when they are writing their papers because they've been texting emojis instead of learning to write and spell. And so it looks like, anyway, 
Wycliffe. Geneva, the, the Bible of the pilgrims from 1560, the, the pilgrims did not come over with the King James Bible. They were sort of opposed to Anglicanism. They were not part of the state established or authorized religion. They were dissenters. They had the Geneva Bible, an English translation of what had been done in Calvin's Geneva. For the whole scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to teach, to improve, to correct, to instruct in righteousness that the man of God may be absolute, perfect, absolute, being made perfect unto all good works. Not a lot has changed since 1560, but whoa, what a difference between 1380 and 1560. The King James Version, as we print it today, which is supposedly a 1611 product, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Profitable for to teach, didascalia. Well, we have a new word in English, doctrine, and it is teaching. For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. They revised the new, the new English translation of 1611 in the late 1800s, like the 1890s, and wrote this. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And this is the, what I read to you earlier, the New American Standard 95. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, this is interesting. I like the New American Standard generally better than the ESV, but I like the ESV translation better in this case. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then 1984, the NIV I hate to like the NIV, but I do here. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. See, they got to mess it up. It's profitable, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's not a whole lot of difference in a lot of the important passages in the NIV, but they got this right. I think God-breathed is the right way to render this one word, Theopneustos. Now let's talk about the bad guy. ASV should have been, they should have hit this one out of the park. They should have written God breathed. But instead, they got cute. And this may be one reason why, for example, uh, Schofield rejected the ASV as his Schofield Bible. He went to the King James and uh, saved Oxford um, University print publishing because um, of, his, of his Schofield reference Bible which came out in 1909. So he had access to the ASV, but they had looked this one up and probably said, get out of here. We're not going to use this. They translated the... Y'all watch this. This is going to blow your mind. They, tribute, they, they translated the predicate adjective as an attributive adjective. Drop the mic. Sorry. <laughs> Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching. Do you understand what kind of door that opens to reading the Bible? The inspired ones are profitable. That's why we get these problems with our science and our, and our Bible is the scientists know better. And so this part isn't inspired. Every <laughs> scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. That's pretty good because there is an article there. That the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. So the only contribution the ASV made was a misinterpretation. 
Well, I mentioned it, the predicate or attributive adjective. Pastor, we came on Sunday morning. We want to hear something that we can use. I can show you what's going on here in English, and it won't really hurt. So this is what you have in an English translation of the Greek. All scripture is the subject. We have to conjecture a verb because it's, that's the construction in Greek. There is no verb. And then you have nominative adjectives that point back to Scripture. Those are called predicate adjectives, and that's what you get when there's a to-be verb, an is. And all of you are thinking, I used to ignore the teacher saying that in fifth grade too. I'm not talking about linking verbs. I'm not listening to predicate adjectives. Can we get to something of substance? Well, this is one of the most important verses for defining what the Bible is, so I think we should give it its due. All Scripture is, and this is your predicate adjective marker, God-breathed and profitable. Now, this is, this is something that, that enlightened me as I was doing, preparing this with you, for you. I did not know that you have two predicate adjectives that are coordinate. Because the next one, profitable, is all these descriptions for doctrine, reproof, correction. But the, but the first one is where it's from. It's God-breathed. And the second one is what it's for, what, why, it's, why we have it. It is profitable. And those coordinate adjectives, see, that's what, that's what grammar does for me, is it helps me put things in perspective. Well, this is what the, the ASV of 1901 did. The American Standard Version said, all, all God-breathed scripture is profitable. Well, then they, and they took the and and said also, which is a legitimate thing. So they said, all God-breathed scripture is profitable. So they, they qualify what scripture is profitable. Now, there's a way to interpret that that isn't contrary. You can say, no, there's lots of books. Hymnal, not inspired. Book about hymns. I got all kinds of stuff about music. Not inspired. Every inspired scripture. So there, they, that, that interpretation, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be gen- generous and say what they meant was all the books in the world stacked up against the Bible are nothing compared to the Bible, which is God breathed. So anyway, predicate or attributive adjective. Pasa grafe theopneustos. This is the declaration that began every message I ever heard as a kid. Every scripture is God-breathed. Given by inspiration of God. Let me count the words. Given by inspiration of God. Five English words to translate one word in Greek. Theopneustos. Theos, God, neustos, P-N-E-U, is spirit, from the spirit or breath or wind. And so God expired, God breathed. That's what this is saying. And so the NIV 1984 nailed it. That's exactly what you should do. You should take one word for one word if you can, which is not their philosophy of translation. But in this case, because we don't have a lot of examples of this word in, in com- contemporary Greek literature, we just take it as it is. It's God-breathed. Now, this could be interpreted in two ways, and we have to be careful. The liberals, those that deny the inerrancy of every word of Scripture, will say that the God-breathing part is that when you read the Bible, you get inspired. When you read the Bible, something happens in you and you are now inspired. So the God breathing is what happens when you read it. God does something in you and that they're saying that's what Paul is referring to. 
The most conservative form of this in the 20th century was called neo-orthodoxy. And all of you are going to glaze over and be like, I don't want to talk about neo-orthodoxy. But the most famous theologian, probably popularly speaking, of the 20th century was a neo-orthodox theologian named Karl Barth. And he said that the Bible is not the Word of God. The Scriptures are not the Word of God. But when you read the Scriptures and the Spirit uses them in you, what that is becomes the Word of God. And what you can do with that, reducing what is objectively God revealing Himself in words and propositions and thoughts, you can turn all of that into my inner impression. And the authority is no longer in what God said, but it's in how I feel about it. I read that and it didn't do anything for me, so I'm going to let that one go. But this verse speaks to me. So now I know which one's inspired and which one's not. The one that inspired me. See how that philosophy, you got to be pretty smart to come up with this kind of nonsense. That's why you go to college. That's what seminary is for. I mean, you get to get a master's degree to be able to articulate this kind of stuff. And the smart people all know. And if you would just go to school, you would know. That it doesn't mean that every word of God is inspired like Jesus says in Matthew. Because, I mean, after all, Matthew wrote that. So it's not even like Jesus didn't necessarily say that. Matthew said he said that. Anybody have an answer to that challenge to the authority of Matthew? We have an answer for the challenge that, well, Matthew just wrote that. Jesus didn't have to necessarily say that. What you got? That would mean that Matthew was greater than Jesus, that he put the word in his mouth. Okay, the thought. Well, but it's a denial that Jesus even said it. Why would you say that, no, we know Jesus did say it because Matthew wrote it? Where would we get that idea? What doctrine in the scriptures from the Spirit of God through the apostles and prophets would tell you, no, 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 Matthew, we have to listen to Matthew? Okay, all scriptures God breathed. But what about Matthew? Huh? Why? Matthew is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that Jesus commissioned him to go with this message that Jesus had. And John, another apostle, tells us in John 14 that the Spirit of God would bring to their memory the things Jesus had taught them that they had forgotten. And that they would be able in the Spirit's power to be his apostles and go make disciples. We listen to Matthew and Peter and John and their associates because they're coming from Jesus. And Jesus deputized them. He delegated this authority of being apostles. It's the biblical doctrine of the New Testament apostles. You hear someone start to, to attack Matthew or start to mess with Matthew. That's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not. And nobody on TV is either, even if they say they are. They're not. They have to be visibly, they have to be, to be witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, taught personally by him. The apostles gave us what we have today we call the New Testament. Now, in context, it's on, we have to be faithful to the context. Paul is not talking about what he's writing when he writes this. It's really important. We're gonna, I know we're, in the, we're down in the... The, the atoms within the, the veins of the, of the plants, okay? And I'm trying to show you the whole forest and all the, all the atoms. But 
in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, you, Timothy, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is God breathed. Paul is absolutely talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament that we call the, the Old Testament, the way we count them, 39. The Jewish counting is different. They have first uh, and second Kings as Kings. They, they count the books differently, but that's what he's talking about. Genesis through Malachi. He's talking about the word of God that God gave Israel that they're caretakers of in context. That's what Paul is addressing. And I've shown you recently. Well, what about what Paul's writing? What about the new Testament? Second Peter three sixteen is your verse. They say uh, they distort the scriptures. They distort Paul's words as they do the rest of the scriptures, says Peter. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, equates in authority what Paul writes in his epistles with what Moses wrote. Second Peter 3.16. For one place to see that. But anyway, the liberal approach to this verse is to say that the Bible is inspired when you read it. And it's really about your personal encounter with God, which nobody here would deny a personal relationship with God through his word and illumination by the spirit. But we're saying that that's not what Paul is talking about. And if you can do that with this passage, you can try to dismantle the biblical doctrine of the inerrancy of the scriptures. And then, then we're off to the races with uh, how did the earth come into existence? Everybody, I hope you understand that the greatest argument in terms of rationale, the greatest reasoning argument for the existence of God is the material universe. It's called the cosmological argument in classic apologetics. And I don't care if you know that, but just the fact from Romans 1 that we know we have a creator because there's a creation. And this attack of Lyell and Darwin on that question of having a creator is designed by God's enemy to get as many people into the lake of fire as possible in their denial and rejection of their creator because they didn't give thanks. They didn't recognize their creator as the creator. They believed this fantasy that in the beginning was nothing and it exploded. And you ask them, well, what happened before, before the bang? Well, we don't ask that question. What, what caused the big bang? And I know there are Christians, there are theists, Bible-believing Christians they, of a form who will say, no, we believe in the big bang, but we believe God did it. God banged the big bang. And um, regardless of how you square what what we notice in the, in the material universe today with what the Genesis one says about creation, regardless of how you do that, I think this verse says that what Moses got, he got from God. The origin of Genesis one is an eyewitness who isn't just a witness to the event. He's the one who did the event, the creator of all things. Every scripture which could also be translated again, all scripture. There's a little bit of argument about this word, all scripture is God breathed and profitable in my little diagram, my little paragraphing diagram on the screen. What I'm trying to show you is this coordination between the two adjectives. What do we know of scripture of God's word? It is in its origin, God breathed and in its function, it is profitable. Ever read through numbers and, uh, and get the, the numbers of, of the families? 
And you, our Bible reading today will be in Numbers. And the whole reading is just a list of names. Amen. Hallelujah. We read the list of names. I found it very illuminating. I like the sound of all those names. Those Hebrew names written in English letters pronounced with a southern accent. And then J.L. took up the, took up the spike and killed Caesar. J.L. That's Yael. Anyway, the, the, the genealogy has a purpose, but it's not to tell you a story that, that, like in the Gospels, you get narratives. That's not the purpose. The purpose of the genealogy is to show you this is historical reality, and this is, this is tied to the time and space you and I live in. These things really happen, and these are the people that they happen to. And it also is uh, forensic. It's forensic in its determination of who is party to what portion of their obedience of God's instructions and his covenant. I want to challenge you today and ask if you really believe this, that every written portion of God's word, and I will apply this passage to the New Testament, obviously, that do you believe this? Most of your friends and family probably don't. If we can get out of it, we will. If God uses the word abomination in the Old Testament, we're going to find a way to say it's not an abomination today. If, if the popular moral, morals of your culture tend away from God's judgment towards man's free expression of, I just want to be me. Well, why did Jesus come? Because me just being me is sinful and broken and rebellious. Not as awful as it can be, but after all, our righteousnesses are as dirty rags in God's sight. Now, the challenge is, do you believe that everything God has said, he has really said? Here's how the culture acts like it doesn't. God starts speaking in his word and people, oh, they're busy. I just can't, I can't, I don't want to do that. Passive entertainment is a huge distraction, and it's never been more available than it is today. When I was a kid, it was Bible time, but the TV was calling. Because, after all, there were 12, nay, 13 channels once we got cable. And I wanted to watch whatever, whatever I could possibly stand to watch on those 13 channels. And I didn't know it was because there was something going on in my brain called uh, a dopamine release through this passive visual light stimulation of my brain. And I look back and say, how much time did I see John Ritter tell bad jokes on reruns in the afternoon as a kid? Why did I do that with my time? I would never do something like that with my time now. It was the stimulation. I was getting a dopamine hit. That's, that's, and everybody is. Ever notice people that have their TV on all the time? They're kind of home by themselves, elderly sometimes. They'll just have it running all the time. Ask them, what are you doing? Are you watching this at that volume all the time? No, I'm just, it's just company. Just having somebody there, you know, I'm kind of by myself. It's stimulation. Their brain is being stimulated. And it isn't only me. I know y'all are struggling or have in the past. There's all kinds of distractions to what's being said here. But everything else besides God's word is less because of this verse. Everything else is less. And in a world designed to kill you, 
In a world of 1 Peter 5.8, where Satan is like a roaring lion, prowling about looking for someone to devour. In a world that is, as I describe it, a meat grinder outside the door looking to eat your children. And I mean devour them and convince them of a lie that you don't need to submit yourself to God. You don't need to live your life for him. You need to be you. And the best expression of you is whatever comes from within. Instead of listening to what God has said and let him turn you in to the version of you that most glorifies him. That you don't just have to be a product of what God wants you to be. That lie from Genesis chapter 3 is the world and it is consuming our children. It's consuming, it has consumed our culture. The more you lean on this current culture, I believe the more you will find yourself consumed, swayed, distracted from what God has actually said. And that's why I'm asking, do you really believe, Preston City Bible Church, these words? That everything that God has said in the Bible, God has said. Do you believe it is what God says it is? That on the one hand, it's from God. And since he is awesome and a much better dad than any of us will ever be, a much better lover, a much better wanter, he's better at wanting for you than you could want for yourself. If you think about God's competences, that not only is it from him, but because it's from him, it is infinitely relevant. It is profitable. Every word of it is profitable for what God would do with you. Well, I don't actually really, really want God to do anything with me. I once told a person in a moment making an appeal that I understand you're a Christian. Do you understand what the Bible is? I said, if you will pay attention to it, it will take over your life. And the person said, I don't want that. We have gotten to the truth. I don't want that. I want my life. I'm going to have my way, my life. And that's the problem of saying that the Bible is God breathed. Now, what I'm suggesting and saying this is that you have to, 2 Timothy 2.15, you have to handle it correctly. You can't put people under a law that doesn't apply to them today. You can't misuse the scriptures. Well, I believe every word, and then you misuse every word. You have to handle it correctly. And so the word of God is the sword of the spirit, and it will cut you. Every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. Somebody tell me in this little interactive message today, what is offensive about teaching, about saying it's for teaching? How is that offensive? Because it is, it's very intensely offensive to my human sensibilities. Yeah, you, you would have to be taught. You're not there already. How many pastors get up in the pulpit or whatever they have today? Isn't this cool? It's a giant little pulpit in a little church. Pastors get up and they, okay, so they already think they know everything. So how do I get in there? How do I say something to people that already know everything? It's like the, the, you know, the dilemma at Christmas with a wealthy grandmother. What do you get for her? She already has everything. You know, what do I say to these people that already know it all? Right. But the Bible says every word of it is for our teaching. And that means me. And that means you. It's offensive that we should be taught. But this is one of the positive words, teaching to Daskalia. We'll leave reproof alone, alleged costs to, uh, for reproof. Um, I taught some kids last night. I made a deal with some kids. I said, well, I'm not going to tell you the deal I made, but I will tell you that I taught some kids this in a little uh, right seat time, I call it, um, on a Zoom message with Samuel and some of his friends. 
And they noticed pros, P-R-O-S, 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 pros, four times. And in your English Bible, it says for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Because Greek and English work a lot the same way with their prepositions. That's just for the purpose of. But reproof. Reproof is another word. It's a synonym for correction. It means that not just that you don't know something and so you need to be taught, but you might know something that isn't so and need to be corrected. This is the iron. This is when you're ironing and you accidentally don't catch the edge right and you iron a crease in. You're like, well, I mean, I guess that crease is going to be there. No. Pull it back out of the sleeve of the the dresser or pull it back out and straighten it and flatten it out. And then then you have to work on that crease you just made. And it's not just a one time now. It's like amazing. Why why did the, the, the iron crease that I messed up on last and then the corrections take so much and it's kind of you can still kind of see it's amazing how that is boy that is me and you we get a wrong idea and we get affectionate about that wrong idea and then that's what well that's who i am that's that's part of what it means to be me now and you're just committed to an error and we're self-deceived and we need to be corrected we need to be reproved we need someone to say not this way but this way for paideia paideia is not a compliment any more than teaching. <laughs> paideia is what you do. Um, paideia is what you do to a paideon. And um, it means uh, as much, it could be potty training up to uh, our ABCs. Training in righteousness. Hand over hand. Not this way, but this way. Uh, it's popular to say in our, our Bible-believing circles that the Bible calls us sheep, and it's not a compliment. Have you ever heard that saying? The Bible says we're sheep, and it's not a compliment. Because sheep can't smell water. They're like the dumbest animal on the, in the barnyard, and, uh, and they constantly you know, have to be tended. They can't, they're, the, they're the animal that most needs a human to, to guide them and, 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 and protect them because they're, they're the most helpless. And... Uh, uh, and when the shepherd spends enough time with the sheep, he starts to smell like them. And that's not great either. And all kinds of things about sheep. Um, I, I once heard it said, well, the problem with sheep is sheep stink. But, um, but that's, that's us. We're broken. And we need this kind of correction. In these words of teaching and reproof and correction and instruction is the constant appeal that I'm not there yet. I'll never be there. This is Philippians 3. We don't consider ourselves to, uh, to have attained, but we advance to that which we've already attained. We're laying hold of that for which Christ laid hold of us, and we're constantly advancing. The Christian life is always teaching, correction, reproof, instruction. It's always improvement. Pop- popular politics will talk about change. Boy, we're getting some change. How are you liking that hope and change? Well, the Bible is constantly appealing to our change, but it's not just change, it's improvement. And I believe everyone is in constant flux. We're not stable. We're either advancing or retrogressing. We're improving or we're, uh, what's the opposite of improve? Going backwards. There's much to say here, but every scripture means everything God wrote through the apostles and prophets. 
Is is not in the Greek. Is is required because of the structure. And this is how you do this kind of sentence. And it's like we have in John chapter 1, the three, the word was with God, the word was God. You have this kind of sentence with the to be verb implied. God breathed means that this is its source, its origin. And coordinate with God breathed is profitable. If you ever find yourself hearing God's word and you're saying, I'm not sure that's relevant. It may be, it may be that you're not hearing the passage interpreted, but you're hearing someone try to apply it, assuming you understand what it means. An application doesn't touch your life. But hey, my application of the Bible is not the Bible. That's why my method is always to interpret. Let's go through the passage. Let's talk about what this means and, it, and what it doesn't mean. And we'll apply as we go. See, if you're finding, well, I don't really think this is relevant to me. I don't have a drinking problem. And all he's doing is preaching about drinking. Well, hey, maybe someone in the church does and they need to hear that. But that would be in perhaps an application of what the passage is saying. There is relevance to every portion of scripture for you. For teaching and instruction is positive. Reproof and correction are negative. That's chiastic. Let me ask you a question. If I'm right, that teaching and instruction and righteousness are positive things and correction and reproof are negative, what is the focus of Paul's Hebraistic chiasm? The focus is always in the middle. The Bible is getting me told. It's telling me what I need to know about me that I don't want to know about me. And that's why James, the brother of our Lord, will say, don't come back from the word and forget what you saw when you saw yourself and forget what kind of person you are because then it doesn't have its effect. It's so easy to get in the car and be like, well, I'm glad that was over. And then you have a very interesting thing in Greek. He says, Hina, which is a so that, which means that verse 17 is directly connected to the main verb of verse 16, which doesn't exist. Verse 16 is, is, but there's no is in Greek, but it's implied. And so the whole phrase, the whole connection of all scripture is God breathed and profitable. So that, so that the man of God will be proficient, artios. I believe the word, the one-time word in Greek, we only have this one time. They're translating it perfect. Better would be adequate. And in context, he's talking about doing the works that God has for us to do. So I'm going to translate it proficient. Perfect in the sense of skilled to do the work. Proficient. Will be the man of God. The subjunctive mood is indicating the purpose. And so I'll translate will be the, the man of God. Will be, will be proficient. For every good word equipped. And this word is built on the same root as artios. He will be proficient and equipped. For what? Every good work. I started the sermon, if that's what this is, <laughs> with a little bit of autobiography, where my first inklings of being a pastor were not about telling people how it was. Being the man up there telling you how it is. But being the person in the desk, learning God's word, because I really enjoyed it. When I finally broke through me to get to it, I really found myself enjoying it. 
And I wanted to do that. I thought it was the most valuable thing I could do with my life. And then someone said, well, you know you have to preach. So to bring it to a close, I was really glad about desk time. But I had to grow, and all, we all have to grow, into putting it into practice. There's, there's the buzz of learning something new about God, and some of you may have that. You may be well attuned to, I love that. I love learning something new, and I pray that you all are. But that is the beginning of a process. It's not the end. The amen is now let's go do it. We study the word together for an hour, and then we go live it for 96, and then we come back. It is, pardon the expression, it is a theological abortion to be in the word and to know what God means by it and to know him through it and then not to do the works that it calls us to. First hour, we started with love, love for God and love for man for God's sake. If you grow spiritually, according to Second, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, you'll grow in your capacity to love as Christ loves. And that requires proficiency. It requires skill to love in the Christian manner, according to God's love. And here's what I mean. If you love me, you'll do what I say is not Christian love. If you love me, you'll give me what I want is not Christian love. It's not. The only one who is a perfect wanter, if you will, the only one who has perfect desire, perfect will, is God himself. And Christian love is wanting what God wants for that other person. That, that means you and I have to get to work studying who is God and what does he want. Christian love is a skill that will develop. And you can start with, well, I don't want them to suffer. Right on. But Why? And what don't you want them to suffer? Because God sent his son so that we wouldn't suffer the lake of fire. What does God want? And beloved, sometimes God wants suffering. You can read about it in James chapter 1. You have to suffer so that you can grow and you trust him. And it's not the lake of fire suffering. It's not going to the cross, but it's momentary and it's affliction and it builds character when we're under trial. Love is not... Something that we just, whatever, like I'm just feeling affection towards someone. Christian love requires me to know God and to be engaged actively with him in prayer for what he's after for someone else. And that's what I'm saying. If you will be this kind of man or woman of God, then you can be proficient for the works that God has for you to do. As you grow spiritually, your capacity to love should follow. Father, we thank you for the privilege we've had to think through these things together. Thank you for all the riches of your grace, for the time we spent in your word. We don't deserve this riches. We don't deserve to worship you and praise you. We don't deserve your grace that you constantly pour out on us, but it is your grace. Father, thank you for the hearts or the feelings we had when we were hearing we needed to be corrected. For those times where we said, yes, I do. Father, for those hearts that were pricked by that thought and disturbed by it. Father, let that disturbance resolve into submission to you where we want what you want we say i'm not god i'm a sinner and i need a savior father if there's anyone here in the hearing of my voice that doesn't know jesus christ as personal savior doesn't have you as god the father because they haven't been born into your family we ask that they would consider christ 
that he died in their place on the cross to pay for their sins. And that the only thing they can do about their state of separation from you is trust in Jesus, is put their faith in him, that he died in their place, that he paid for their sins, that he alone is the Savior. We thank you for our so great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.